morning, everybody. A familiar passage of scripture, and um, one in which Matthew goes back to the Hebrew scriptures to quote from the prophet Isaiah, so we'll look a little bit at that. Scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 1, and Matthew's gospel begins with a genealogy. Maybe not the way that you or I would think to start a biography of Jesus. Here's how it begins, and in an effort to put you all to sleep, I'm going to read the first few verses of this genealogy. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, but wait, and Aram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. It's really getting good here, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. So this is just about half of the genealogy. If you'd like, I could keep going. Okay, I'll just, I'll leave it at that. So you get a bit of a taste for what's going on here at the start of Matthew's gospel. And perhaps it's not the most engaging way to begin. One commentator used the words, people might conceive of this as uh, applauding an unedifying way to begin a gospel. But Matthew is actually communicating some important things about what it means for Jesus to come and dwell with us, really setting up what it, uh, the, the importance of Emmanuel, God, with us through this very genealogy. We might be tempted to just sort of gloss over this list of names as if we are um, checking off our Old Testament reading for the day. But this is really important. He's doing a couple of things here. He's doing actually a number of things. And believe it or not, we could probably spend weeks just looking at this genealogy and what Matthew was accomplishing through it. But there are a couple of things that I want to highlight this morning about what Matthew might be up to in this genealogy before we get to this passage in Matthew chapter 1 that we just read. And then we'll look back at Isaiah 7. So what is Matthew doing with the Hebrew scriptures? How does he use them? Through this genealogy, I want to suggest first that Matthew directs his readers, or his listeners, us, to remember Israel's history in a particular way. The list of names serves as a reminder of the narrative of Israel's past as sin-filled, a sin-filled past. Each of these names carries with it a story. So this is sort of a, a shorthand way of retelling the entire narrative that leads up to Jesus. It's as if um, there, each of these names is sort of like a file folder on a computer, and you could open these file folders and, and read these lengthy stories. So it's sort of like a, I don't, I, my computer knowledge ends there, so I'm just going to stop. But you get the picture. This is a shorthand way of introducing this narrative, of setting up the fact that Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. But this genealogy points to the fact that Israel's past is sin-filled. Take a look, for example, at verse 6. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So if we just pause there for a moment, why in the world 
would Matthew include this story of, you may remember it, David's adultery with Bathsheba, and then his orchestrated murder of Bathsheba's husband. I can imagine the long-departed David sort of looking over Matthew's shoulder as he's compiling his gospel and saying, do we have to say it like that? And in fact, do we even have to include that unsavory bit? Couldn't we just leave that part out? And it's followed by this uh, checkered history of kings who are at turns faithful and unfaithful to Israel's God. In fact, the exile in Babylon is mentioned as sort of a checkpoint in this genealogy. So the opening chapter, these opening verses of Matthew's gospel seem to be nudging us toward conceiving of Jesus' work as that of entering into a mess, a mess of sin, a mess of captivity, a mess of unfaithfulness, a mess of damaged relationships, even something as serious as David's sin, although Jesus has come to save us from individual sins too, and this is the second point that I'd I'd point out, Matthew is painting a much broader picture of sin. This is a genealogy. It's not just a, a list of isolated events, but it's a story of an entire nation's unfaithfulness, not just individual in scope, but broad and generations long in scope. In scope. So, Matthew is saying not only that this is a mess, but that it's part of a systemic mess. It's something that has lasted through generations. It's not isolated as if any of these names in this list can be counted as uh, above the sin that has characterized Israel's past. So it's not just that I have sinned, but it's that God's people have sinned. And it's not just that God's people have sinned, but God's people come from a long line of sinners. We're implicated in systemic transgression and covenant breaking that stretches back through generations. It's also extra significant that right on the heels of this packed genealogy, with those sweeping points in mind, we hear the angel of the Lord speak these words to Joseph. Joseph son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You are to name him Jesus. And here it is. For he will save his people from their sins. What people? These people who were just listed in the genealogy. All, of the, uh, all that's represented here. When Matthew looks back at the history of Israel and the Hebrew scriptures, the Law and the Prophets, the Bible that Jesus would have known and read and heard, He has in mind Jesus, the salvation story. So Matthew's trying to illustrate the point that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that has come before, both the heartbreak and the beauty. And as the carol puts it, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Matthew is structuring his gospel account to reinforce that God's salvation through Jesus was the plan all along. This approach taken by Matthew and others who wrote what we now know as the New Testament prompted the great reformer Martin Luther to say centuries later, Christ is the baby wrapped in the swaddling clothes lying in the manger of the Old Testament. Process that for just a moment. Christ is the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in the manger of the Old Testament. 
So the Old Testament, before Christ is on the scene as a character, Christ is in the manger of the Hebrew Scriptures, if we only have eyes to see. The Hebrew Scriptures, the Law and the Prophets, Matthew wants us to know, point to Jesus. He is present through Israel's history, this sin-filled history. Whether they were faithful or unfaithful, whether they felt far from him or near to him, he was in fact present. In the genealogy, as we see, the past is being spoken of in a brutally honest way. Then we arrive at this morning's scripture reading in which Matthew refers to the Hebrew scriptures yet again, this passage in Isaiah chapter 7. In this case, um, this passage in Isaiah is a bit more hope-filled. So he's taking a brutal, honest look at Israel's past, and then we get to this morning's scripture reading. Here, as we've seen in the previous weeks during Advent, the past is being reimagined through hope-filled lenses. The passage from Isaiah that he uses here is maybe an odd one, and since we're so familiar with it, maybe we kind of lose sight of how odd it actually is. But here's, again, the angel speaking to Joseph. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And here we find a feature in Matthew's gospel that is unique to him. He will often intrude in his own narrative. He kind of can't help himself and say this phrase. It happens repeatedly in Matthew's gospel. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. So he intrudes on the narrative here and introduces these words of Isaiah. So in a not-so-subtle way, throughout Matthew's gospel, he's saying, here's the one we've been looking for. Here's the one that the Hebrew scriptures are bearing witness to. Here's, here are the words from Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall, shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So what exactly was spoken by Isaiah the prophet? Let's take a look at the passage in its context from Isaiah chapter 7. Read verses 10 through 16. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, king of Judah, saying, Ask for a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary mortals that you weary my God also? Therefore... The Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. So all these alarm bells, as we read Isaiah, are going off in our minds. This is something that Matthew looked back at and sort of cherry-picked to put in his narrative. We'll take a look at maybe some potential reasons why. He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, for before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose, whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. So for some context, Ahaz is an evil king who leads Israel astray. Ahaz, by the way, is mentioned in Matthew's genealogy, right? So underscoring that Jesus has come to save us from corrupt evil rulers as well. We read this about Ahaz in 2 Kings. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his ancestor David had done. But he walked in the way of the king of Israel. So when we arrive at Isaiah 7, Ahaz is intent upon um, keeping Israel separate 
but doing so not through trusting Yahweh, not through trusting God, but through forming alliances with other kings, with neighboring nations to secure Israel's future. Ahaz does not want to hear from God's mouthpiece then. Since he's not serving God, why would he want to hear from God's mouthpiece, Isaiah? So Isaiah then is locked in this struggle to sort of convince Ahaz to put his trust in Yahweh, to put his trust in Israel's God. So a couple of characteristics about this prophecy's original context might lead us to wonder why Matthew chose to quote it in his gospel. First of all, Isaiah's prophecy about Emmanuel does not refer in its original context, it seems, to a miraculous birth. We just read it, nothing necessarily miraculous there. The birth of Emmanuel is simply, in that case, a prophetic sign. Nothing miraculous spoken of in that context. The prophecy doesn't seem to refer to a virgin birth. The word Matthew uses for virgin, virgin is in the Hebrew translated young woman. So the young woman will be with child, not necessarily the virgin. Despite this difference, I think there's one point among possible others that makes this prophecy a logical one to refer to. And that's this. In the 8th century BC, when Isaiah prophesied this to King Ahaz, Judah is vulnerable and surrounded by foreign powers. Likewise, this is the case when Jesus is born under Roman occupation. So think of Matthew chapter 2 and Herod's slaughter of the innocents. So again, an angel appears to Joseph in Matthew chapter 2. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So the context of both of these passages, the context of the Isaiah prophecy and the context of when Jesus comes, they sort of rhyme in a way. They go together in the sense that there, is, there are hostile powers here at play. But here's an important point, and, and where I sort of like the weight of this morning to land, and it's this. Emmanuel has not come just to save us from what circumstances threaten us or for the people who we perceive are threatening us. In some senses, that's one and the same, circumstances who threaten us, the people who threaten us. But he has also come to reorient our hearts toward people and circumstances who would otherwise be seen as threats. To reorient our hearts toward those challenging circumstances, those difficult people. The first clue we get of this comes again in Matthew's genealogy. We thought we were done, but no, we are not. Matthew's genealogy is structured in such a way as to suggest that God's salvation in Jesus extends beyond God's people Israel. This is a bit harder to pick up on in the genealogy. There are four women mentioned either directly or indirectly in Matthew's genealogy. First is Tamar in verse 3. Rahab and Ruth are mentioned in verse 5, and Bathsheba, mentioned as the wife of Uriah, in verse 6. So, as you might imagine, the presence of women in genealogies is sort of uncommon, to put it mildly, in this day and age. Looking back at their respective stories, however, yields some interesting possibilities for why Matthew may have included them, especially when you consider that we're headed toward uh, Jesus' mother, Mary. Comparing and contrasting these women with Mary, who comes later. 
But perhaps most significantly, all four of these women are non-Israelites. They're non-Israelites. So significant first that they're even included, but perhaps doubly significant, and Matthew, who usually will take the liberty to intrude in the narrative, is maybe just nudging us on the shoulder and saying, look, look here, right in the genealogy of Jesus, there are non-Israelites who are part of God's plan, part of God's purpose to bring God's salvation to the world. Those who you would maybe least expect, not only because of their social status as women, but also because they are completely outside of the fold, outside of the people of God. This is noteworthy, and alarm bells should be going off in our heads as we read these names. He's signaling that the same salvation from sin that God is bringing about for Israel is also being brought about for Gentiles, those outside the fold. All of humanity, all of humanity is in this mess. And it's precisely that mess that God has entered into to redeem it. So here's what it might mean for us to reorient our hearts to outsiders. Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us throughout Matthew's gospel, not just here at the start, but throughout, from the start to the end. And we've looked at the opening, we've looked at this genealogy. Now let's fast forward to the very end of the gospel. So Jesus, as Emmanuel, presented as bookends to the gospel here in Matthew 1 and again in Matthew chapter 28. So Matthew 28, after Jesus is resurrected, he's meeting with his disciples Pick it up in verse 16 of chapter 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Now by this time, some have realized that Jesus is indeed God, worthy of worship. Yet, as was the case with Ahaz and the long line of Israel's kings, there are those among Jesus' own disciples who doubt that God is in fact with them. And yet, verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So think back to the genealogy. Salvation not just for Israel, but it extends beyond God's people Israel. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, here it is, I am with you. Behold, I am Emmanuel to the end of the age. So Matthew points out this truth at the beginning of the gospel. Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. And then here at the end of the gospel, we have this same phrase, in Jesus' mouth. And it is the very basis for the work that we are to be about as his church. The Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Why? What's the ground for that? I'm with you. I'm with you. At the outset of Matthew's gospel, God has come to save his people. And this is obviously good news for a people living under a hostile pagan empire. Israel's history, as we see hinted at in the genealogy, is defined not only by captivity to sin, but also by captivity to foreign powers. Thus, the Gentiles who rule over Israel are naturally regarded as enemies. They're regarded as oppressors. And the logic would thus run something like, Emmanuel, God with us, will protect and deliver us from these hostile powers. 
Emmanuel will protect and deliver us from these hostile powers. And that is certainly true. And that is an important thing to keep in mind. Maybe you would find special comfort in that during this Christmas season. However, I'd like to suggest this morning that Jesus' Messiahship, his coming, his being Emmanuel, means something else. It does mean that, but it means not just that. Jesus' presence with us is not just for the purpose of uh, receiving comfort from him. It's not for the purpose of isolating ourselves from all that seems opposed to God. On the contrary, as we see in Matthew 28, the fact that Jesus is Emmanuel is the very basis for the Great Commission. It doesn't insulate us from the other. It opens us up to the other. As theologian Richard B. Hayes says, God with us, this fact of Jesus being Emmanuel, is both the warrant and the motive for a mission that carries the preaching of the gospel beyond geographic and ethnic boundaries. God's presence with us is counterintuitively not simply for our sakes. It is, and it always has been, so easy to get tied in knots about the mess that we are in the systems of sin that we are implicated in and that we, to one extent or another, have participated in ourselves, that we miss out and we overlook the mission that God has for us. God's coming to us, his being Emmanuel, and musicians, if you want to come before I get carried away, his coming to us does not mean that we stay where we are. His coming to us means counterintuitively that we depart he has come that you and I might go. He has come to you so that you might go to them. It is perhaps easier for us to conceive of a God who is with us to save us than a God who is with us to send us. And yet we see both of these truths in Jesus being Emmanuel, not just for our own comfort or safety or protection. In fact, quite the opposite. If we are indeed called to go and to be about God's mission, it calls us out of safety. I think I'm going to stop and just let the weight land there. Maybe you're in a position where you feel extra vulnerable and you would take comfort in the fact that Christ was born into a mess and he was born into a vulnerable situation. And you need the comfort of Emmanuel who has come to save. But I would also challenge you, if you're in a position where um, your faith has maybe led you to a, to a position of comfort and you've forgotten, perhaps overlooked or looked past the mission Maybe in this verse that has provided you comfort in the past, maybe it would be um, sort of a, an uncomfortable thistle that would move you out of a comfortable position and into the fray for the sake of God's mission. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for your presence with us. We're so thankful that you are Emmanuel that you have come to save us. And we recognize now that we are in desperate need of salvation. 
We're in desperate need of your presence with us in so many ways, in so many areas. And yet, Lord, we recognize that your presence with us is not simply for the sake of saving us, but also for sending us. It is the warrant for your great commission. Lord, we pray that your word would take hold in our hearts and that it would compel us to join you on mission, that call into the fray, into difficulty, into situations of vulnerability for the sake of your kingdom. Lord, as we await your coming, would you make this word come alive in our hearts? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.